Thank you, Jonathan. Lots going on around here these days, uh, and so I'm grateful for all of that. Just before I get started this morning, I want to reiterate uh, to, to all of you that next week is a really big deal for our church. Uh, not only is it our third anniversary, so, so three, get this, three years ago, three, just three years ago, uh, a small group of us began to meet at Winter Haven High School. <laughs> and when I think of all that God has done in three years, uh, I get tired. Um, uh, and grateful. And so next Sunday is not only our third anniversary, but it is also we've arranged it. God has been good in his providence, and we are going to not only celebrate our third anniversary together, but we're also going to celebrate the becoming of what we in our denomination call a particular church. It's a weird language, but it basically means that we will now have a system of government in place here in our local congregation that will govern our local congregation, and we will not be governed by an external either Presbytery or another church that, that mothered us. And so that is a really big deal. Uh, you should congratulate the six men that we're going to be in, ordaining and installing as elders next week. Uh, David Dodd, Ron Avery, David Savant, Terry Henderson, Josh Snively, and Gene Lanehart. They, this past Monday night, sustained a, about a three-hour uh, oral examination, which I affectionately refer to as spiritual proctology. Um, they, they, did, they did remarkable and they should be commended. And uh, I, am, I just am overwhelmed because this congregation is going to be in much better hands when those men uh, are sitting around the table than with the two goofballs that have been leading this thing for the last three years. I promise you. So if you see them, uh, congratulate them, rejoice with them. Uh, they are glad to be through that process. We are glad to be through that process. But next week... We're going to be here at 5.30 to have that. It is a worship service. We will have a, a sermon by Tim Rice, who uh, is, uh, was our pastor for years at Trinity before we came over here. And then there will be a number of things that will happen. We will be, um, we will be organized as a congregation. Once we're organized as a congregation, we will um, then um, install, ordain and install the elders. And then after that, you will um, call officially Jonathan and I to be pastor and associate pastor of the church. And so there'll be some formality. I'm probably just, I'm probably going to be in a suit. <laughs> that should tell you something. If I can find one. I don't really even know if I own one anymore. But, um, but it, 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 there is some pomp and circumstance and formality to it, but it really is a neat thing. So please be here, 530. There are going to be people from Lakeland, from other, our other churches over there coming. We have invitations. If you'd like to invite your friends to come, please do that. Uh, invite people to come and celebrate with us. And then afterwards, we're going to have a reception. We're going to have the tent back. Uh, and, and, and have a blowout thing uh, with catering and all that. And I've seen the price tag for that thing. Believe me, it's going to be good. It better be. Right, Tammy? Uh, and so come and celebrate with us, please, uh, next week at 5.30. But also come to next Sunday as well. Now, uh, having said that, okay, uh, we're in the middle of a series this fall in the life of David from First and Second Samuel. And so we're going to continue that series this morning. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Now, last week, last week we, uh, we talked about the friendship between David and Jonathan. Uh, this week we're going to talk a little bit more, kind of the last little bit, about uh, the way not only does David love Jonathan as a friend, but David loves Saul, Jonathan's father, even though he's his enemy. And so let's look at this passage in 1 Samuel 24. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to read along with me. If not, uh, it is printed for you in the worship folder, and also it will be on the screen behind me as we... Read. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's a long passage, but stick with me. It's really great stuff. Okay? Uh, let's read together. Beginning in verse 1. 
When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Use your imagination. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the, wickedness come, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue a dead dog? After a flea, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore. By the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is God's word. What a great passage. What an amazing, amazing passage. Now, last week we talked about friendship between David and Jonathan, and we said that one of the ways that you know you've had an experience of grace is that the gospel has come into your life in such a way that it's making you a good friend to people. So you're, you're willing to bear with people who are different than you. You're willing to put yourself out there. You don't give up on people even when they sin against you or, or do, do harm to you. And you're secure enough to really open up your life and offer them intimacy and really let them in so you can be vulnerable. You're constant, you're vulnerable. And so a sign that we're getting it as a church, getting the gospel, is that our life will be, I hope, increasingly characterized by deep intimacy and friendship with one another. That's, that'll be something that is just true of our life together. Now, today, today we want to look at another part of the story, and, and we want to say this, that just like then, you know, last week, the way you know you've had an experience of grace is that the gospel's making you a good friend. Today, 
we look at this passage and we say, the way you know that you've had a genuine experience of grace. In other words, we, the way we, know, way we know that the gospel's coming into your life and it's, begin, it's beginning to be real to you in a very powerful way is that it is making you into a person who has the power and the freedom to love even your enemies. See, Jesus was a good friend. And so if he begins to live his life out through you, then he'll make you a good friend too. And Jesus loved his enemies. So if you put your faith in him and he begins to live his life out through you, then by the power of his spirit, he will and he intends to turn you and me into people who can love even an enemy. And if you pay very careful attention to the New Testament teaching, you'll see that this is the expectation for everybody who calls himself a Christian. This isn't like super saint status stuff. This is just ground level, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Places like Luke 6, 27 through 28. Love your enemies, Jesus says, and do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Or from Romans 12, which is our call to worship, repay no one evil for evil, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so I, I got it. Somebody, I can't remember who it was, retweeted uh, something from somebody. You know how all that, all, maybe you don't, but that, I get confused with Twitter still a little bit. But there, I, a tweet came across my little, uh, you know, my timeline this week. And it was just this. And I can't quote it because I can't remember who, I can't quote whoever it was. But they said, Christians are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. I mean, Christians are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Now, the only way you can do that, the only way we can be that, is to have our hearts overthrown by the true king, the son of David, that is greater than David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves his enemies, which includes you and I. But it's hard to even think about such things, isn't it? So we need to talk for a little while this morning, and we're going to do... So under three headings, if you would just follow along with me in your outline, which is on the back side of the page where you have that sermon passage there. Three headings, three things about this idea of loving our enemy that I want you to see from this text this morning. First, the wisdom to identify your enemies. Secondly, the vision for relating to your enemies. And third, the power ultimately to love your enemies. So the wisdom to identify enemies, a vision for relating to enemies, and the power to love enemies. Those are the three things I want to talk about briefly together this morning. First, with just this, that this passage helps us find wisdom to identify our enemies. Now, when the Bible talks about loving an enemy, who is it talking about? Who is it referring to? Okay, I did some thinking this week in, um, in a discipleship um, setting with a man, and we were talking about Galatians 5. And I went back to Galatians 5 there where Paul lists what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the evidences of a life... Uh, that is full of the Spirit's power and presence. And the things he lists are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. You know, which is really you know, the ability to bear injury from somebody else and not melt down. The, the ability to befriend other people very well. But just before that list there in Galatians 5, there's another list. Which Paul calls the works of the flesh. So, the, the works of the flesh. In other words, the flesh being... Uh, this term for the besetting selfishness and self-orientation of the human heart. And so the works of the flesh, the, the things that come out kind of the heart that's still kind of captive to sin are things like sexual immorality and impurity 
and drunkenness. And we say, amen, that makes sense. You know, those things are bad. Those are the typical issues of morality that we like to talk about in the church. But Paul goes on. It's interesting. And he says that the works of the flesh are not just sexual immorality and impurity and drunkenness and all those really technical or bad sins, but they are, but they are also enmity or hatred or hostility, strife, conflict, arguments, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, envy, all those things lead to dissensions, which means a lack of unity and divisions. And I say all of that, okay, just to say this, that sin and selfishness destroys relationships. That the flesh, inside of every single one of us, is always introducing conflict. It's creating jealousy or envy, fueled by self-interest that leads to hurt feelings and bitterness. And so there's just all this kinds of conflict. And what that does is it should create an expectation for us. And the expectation is just this. Is it's not, okay... We have to rethink the way we think about community and what it means for us to really be good friends to one another. Because if there's conflict in your relationships, whether they be family or friends or even the church, in, in the, the context of this church, if there's conflict, it doesn't mean something's wrong. It means something's very right. Because community without conflict is not really community. It's just pseudo-community. You're not really living, you know, you're kind of there with one another, but you're not living close enough to one another to really begin to see and to get to know, you know, sin and kind of figure out who these people are. But when there begins to be conflict, conflict is a sign of genuine community. And so we have to change our expectations. And it's an important point to make because when we think of an enemy, we think in terms of the categories of people that Jesus directs us to in Luke chapter 6, right? People love your enemies and bless those who curse you and be good to those who hate you and pray for those who abuse you. So, you know, that makes sense. An enemy is a person who hates you or who abuses you or who curses you, who wills you evil or who, you know, takes advantage of you. Those categories of people, that makes sense. It's easy to think of a person who relates to you that way as an enemy, but we hardly ever think of a friend being an enemy or a spouse being an enemy or a sibling being an enemy because it feels harsh and judgmental. But my friend Paul Miller, who has discipled us and counseled us a lot, has really helped me in this. And he has a really helpful insight, I think. And he introduced me to the idea in his personal Jesus study to a, what he calls a temporary enemy. In other words, he says there are moments, there are seasons, there are areas in which another person, even a friend or spouse or a family member, becomes an enemy. And he says that this word enemy is meant to be a description of the way someone is relating to you. And so he says it this way. He says, when somebody interprets everything you do through a negative grid, you have an enemy. So an enemy is somebody who, you know, someone who interprets everything you do through a negative grid. And that's a perfect description of Saul towards David in 1 Samuel. I mean, he interprets everything David does, doesn't he, through, through a negative grid. He assigns all kinds of false motives to David's, you know, actions. Look at verse 9 specifically. David says, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? In Saul's mind, it's very clear, David wants his throne. He's a traitor. He's after Saul's kingship. And nothing, we find, could be further from the truth. I mean, David knows that God means for him to be king after Saul, but he does nothing. He does nothing in all of these chapters to suggest that he means Saul harm. In fact, when he has the chance to get him, he refuses to do so. And yet Saul's convinced that David means him harm. So you see, in Saul, David has a temporary enemy. 
I mean, these two, if you read this whole section of Scripture, they really do have an on-again, off-again relationship throughout all the chapters. And you can see, even here at the end of the chapters, Saul says, you're, you know, they're, they're reconciled, Saul goes home, David's going to be the king, everything's great, and then in chapter 26, he's out trying to kill him again. <laughs> right? And so they have this weird kind of on-again, off-again relationship that eventually settles into complete alienation, but David loves Saul. He loves his family. Jonathan, Saul's son, is his best friend. He loves this family. He wants Saul to be great. And so see this, this idea of temporary enemy. Now, scenarios. I want, see, I'm trying to get this down to the ground level because it can feel so love your enemy. I mean, what, is, you know, what does that mean? Do I, I love you know, the, the people in Afghanistan who are killing you know, soldiers from America? Yeah, maybe. But let's get it down to the ground level and say there are all kinds of scenarios where you might have an enemy. You might have an enemy in your marriage in a particular area of conflict. Or in your family. And here's one I've seen, okay? And some of you can amen this. If you, if you want to see siblings become enemies, have a parent die and try to divide up the parent's estate. Right? Or the parent of a teenager. Okay, if you're the parent of a teenager, pray for me. I'm one year away. Oh, Lord, I'm shaking in my boots. But if you're the parent of a teenager, you know that sometimes a parent of a teenager has a teenager who's their enemy because that teenager filters everything the parent does through a negative grid. Or maybe there's rivalry or competition at work for a particular raise or a particular job or a performance review of some kind, whatever it might be. See, there's all these scenarios where people who are otherwise your friends or even siblings or even a spouse, uh, you can get sideways and they can really begin to treat you like an enemy, to, to, to filter in everything you do to interpret everything you do through a negative grid and assign all kinds of motives to you, and then there's all this conflict. And so you need wisdom to identify who it is that's acting towards you like an enemy. But secondly, you need a vision for relating to those people. So as your mind begins to fill with people, hopefully, that that this really kind of applies to in your life, the second thing this passage helps you with is it gives you a vision for relating to these people who are acting like your enemy, as Saul was to David. Now let me ask a question. What is our instinctive reaction to someone who's hurt us? It's kind of a silly question, isn't it? Hurt them back. Uh, This is the natural instinctive response of the human heart. You hurt me, I hurt you back. But not only that, I hurt you back worse. But Paul in Romans 12 warns against this type of response. And if you, you want to go there, you can look there because it is a fascinating passage in the way it parallels this passage in 1 Samuel 24, Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. And he knows this is the natural thing to do. This is what we do. We, we are naturally inclined to repay evil with evil. But Paul, Paul's trying to steer us away from that. And down in verse 21, he says that if you and I do that, if when, when we are, you know, evil is perpetrated against us, we return in kind, here's what's going to happen. Paul says, if you do that, you will be overcome by evil. In other words, if someone's sinned against you, and instead of forgiving them or praying for them or taking care of their physical needs and doing good to them, if you seek revenge or if you hold a grudge or whatever it might be, if you do that, then you've been overcome by evil. You've added sin to their sin. You're just as guilty of sinning against them as they are sinning against you. But what's worse, Paul says, you've increased the evil. You've been swallowed up by it. The evil the other person did, what's happened is it's, passed into you and it's beginning to twist and change you and affect the way that you relate back to that person. You see, David in this passage takes one step towards this kind of response. 
There he is. He's in my hands. And then he immediately repents. Look what happens. When Saul walks into the cave here, David's men want him to kill him. But instead of killing him, David takes his sword and he cuts off the corner of his robe. And then we're told in verse uh, 5 that immediately he's conscience stricken. Look at verse 5. Uh, David's heart was struck. David's heart struck him, the writer says. He was convicted. He knew what he was doing was wrong. But what did he, what did he do wrong? Robert Alter, who uh, is a commentator on, on First and Second Samuel, he has a great, I think, insight into uh, what's happening here with David taking his sword and cutting off the corner of Saul's robe. He says, clearly, what David feels is that he has perpetrated a kind of symbolic mutilation of the king by cutting off the corner of his garment, not with anything like scissors, of course, but surely with his sword, his instrument for killing his enemies. If you remember, back uh, earlier in the story, in 1 Samuel 15, uh, Saul is um, walking away from Samuel, and his robe gets ripped, his cloak gets ripped and gets torn away. And as it gets torn away, Samuel says, just like your cloak has been torn, so God has torn the kingdom away from you. And, And again, here, in the same way, David rips or he cuts off the corner of Saul's cloak, symbolically, in effect, cutting away Saul's kingship. David is symbolically invalidating Saul's kingship and claiming his own right to the throne. That's what Alter says is really happening as he takes his cloak and kind of cuts off the corner. And David's men say, kill him. I mean, God has given him into your hands, but David doesn't kill him. He cuts off the corner of his cloak. But even in doing that, you see, it's amazing. His heart is struck, and he says, verse 6, look kind of closely at this. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So in cutting off the corner of Saul's cloak, David, he says, he says, I put out his hand against Saul, or at least in his mind he did so. The Lord forbid that I put out my hand against him, he says. And the phrase means to take whatever power. The hand is the symbol of power for the Hebrew mind. And so to take whatever power or whatever force you have, and because that person's hurt you, to set, to, to set it against the other person. And there are all kinds of ways that we do this, I started to think. It might be open hostility. Or it might be just holding a grudge. Or it might be to, to define the other person, just willfully define the other person by their offense, to caricaturize them according to what they've done to us. Or to speak poorly of them, to turn to gossip and slander, to put our hand out against them that way. Or to avoid and just withdraw and not deal with the situation, whatever it might be. But David says, the Lord forbid that I should do this. And if you look there closely, what stays David's hand, David's hand is that he is still... He still is able to see Saul as the Lord's anointed. He says two times, look, look at there. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. And so he recognized that by lifting his hand against Saul, he was in effect at some level lifting his hand against the Lord because it was the Lord who made Saul king. And Saul was still king. And so it was obvious to David that the Lord meant for Saul to still be king. And to do anything other than to submit to God in his ordaining of the leadership of Saul over the people of Israel, David saw as something willful. It would be to raise his will up against the will of God in putting Saul in place as the king. Uh, Gene Edwards wrote a book about the relationship between Saul and David called The Tale of Three Kings. It really is a marvelous book. And in the scene, he imagines this scene... (laughs) And he imagines that once Saul has left, David's men begin to riot in the aftermath. And they ask, why? 
David, why? Look at us. Less than an hour ago, you could have freed us all. Yes, we could all be free right now. Free in Israel too. She would be free. Why, David? Why did you not end these years of misery? And David's answer in, in Gene Edwards' account is really brilliant and complete conjecture, by the way, but brilliant. And here's how he has David answer. He says, this is David's words, because, because long ago, he was not mad. He was young. He was great. Great in the eyes of God and men, and it was God who made him king. God, not men. Better he kill me than I learn his ways. Better he kill me than I become as he is. I shall not practice the ways that cause kings to go mad. I will not throw spears, nor will I allow hatred to go in my heart. I will not avenge, not now, not ever. That's exactly, I think, what Paul meant in Romans 12 when he said, Do not repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. So let me ask you, when you find yourself confronted with an enemy, whoever it may be, can you, trust, can you entrust yourself to the sovereignty of God and believe that God's going to take care of you so that you don't have to put your hand out against them? God's, God's going to come behind you, and he's going to take care of you and provide for you, and so you don't have to do that. Can you trust God's sovereignty that way, the way David did? And let me ask, do you have the courage? Do you have the vision? Do you have the vision? This is really about a, a new vision for loving people that we might call our enemies. Do you have the vision to consider the person before you who is your enemy is much more than just your enemy. C.S. Lewis, in his famous um, essay, The Weight of Glory, he said that the weight of the glory of the people we're related to, even enemies, should be so heavily impressed upon us, but that we have no choice to relate to one another, even as enemies, in deep humility. He says, here's how he put it, he says that even the dullest and most uninteresting person you may talk to, and I would add your worst enemy, whoever they may be, C.S. Lewis says one day will be a creature if which if you could see them now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else there would be such a horror, it would be something of your worst nightmare. And so, Lewis says the only option is that we conduct all of our dealings with one another in circumspection and awe, even with people who have abused us and offended us. David says, forbid, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to the Lord's anointed. And so in David's response and in his repentance, we see a very different kind of response to an enemy. Because look, on the one hand, David refuses to give in to vengeance, despite his men encouraging him. He takes one step in that direction, and then his conscience goes nuts. But on the other hand, David refuses just to avoid the situation. I mean, he could have stayed in the cave, but he doesn't. Look what happens in the story. He goes out, and he calls out to Saul with great respect, my lord the king, and with great affection, my father, he calls him. In other words, his goal is that Saul come to know the truth. You see, I, I, I didn't even notice it until we just read it a minute ago. But do you see how many times in David's address he says, Behold, behold, see, behold, see. He wants Saul to wake up to the reality of how things really are, that David does not mean him harm. David is his greatest champion. He's his greatest friend. And he, he goes out to Saul with the goal of getting Saul to come to know the truth. There's no treason or wrong in my hands, he says, I've not sinned against you, and yet you seek my life. He's reasoning with Saul. But if you look carefully there, he's also rebuking Saul. The language of verses 13 and 14 bring this out. David says of this proverb of the ancients, out of the wickedness, out of the wicked comes wickedness. And the, and the, and the verb there in the Hebrew is the same that he uses of the king when he says, who is the king of Israel? Come out. 
And after whom do you pursue? Who do you come out after? And David, by implication there, is saying, Saul, what you've done here is wrong. And so it's, it's fast. It's amazing. David, he, he refuses to give in to, to um, vengeance and to seeking revenge. But on the other hand, he refuses to just withdraw and avoid the situation. He comes out and he speaks the truth and love to Saul. And he invites, I mean, what's he, what's he opening himself to? He invites greater conflict. So I'm not going to take vengeance, but I'm not just going to walk away and not deal with the situation. See, that, that's a unique vision for dealing with people who might be your enemies. And so we've got to finish then today by asking, so then how do you find the power to love your enemies, especially temporary enemy, like a spouse or a friend or a sibling like that? In other words, how do you find the humility not to avenge, but at the same time the courage to not avoid? And it really comes out in this passage in David's confidence that God sees and that he will judge. So look, for example, in verse 12, if you would. And this is where David lands. He says, May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And then again, in verse 15, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hands. Now let me summarize that and say, I think this is what David is trying to say in, in, in those verses. God will declare me not guilty. God knows I've not offended. I've not sinned. And one day, God is going to come to my aid and he will pass a sentence of not. He will declare me not guilty. And that's David's hope. That's his confidence. And then, of course, in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul echoes these words and the, the teaching he gives to the church. And he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. So David is confident that God sees and that there will come a day when God will right every wrong, and his confidence, his trust, his faith is so rooted in God that he feels no need to take vengeance. It's not his job. And this is the very thing the Apostle Paul appeals to. He says, don't avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. See, Paul's saying God sees whatever wrong has been committed against you, whatever evil that people have done to you, God is not, you know, unaware of that. He sees, and ultimately he will come, and he will bring it to judgment, and he will take care of you. That person, right, who is your enemy, they will ultimately have to deal with God, and you can trust him to deal with them and put things to right. And so the wrong that that person has committed against you, they will have to answer for God for that. And can I just say, it will be more frightening for them to reckon with God on account of their sin than anything they might have to deal with you on. And so however that person has sinned against you, it has made them liable to the wrath of God. And that should make you compassionate. It should make me compassionate. It should make us pity those we might call our enemies, and make us careful not to make ourselves liable to God's wrath in our response. See, David knew he was in God's hand. And a fascinating feature of this part of the story is in these years of David's wandering in the wilderness is when he penned most of the Psalms. Isn't that neat? And in particular, Psalm 57, uh, we give a, we're given a, a, a script at the very beginning of Psalm 57 that says that this is a song that David wrote where, when he was uh, fleeing from Saul in the cave. And in the psalm, David just says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in your, you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storm of destruction passes by. I mean, David, David knew that God was for him and that God would ultimately come and he would right whatever wrong had been perpetrated against him. Now, let me just kind of wrap 
this up. To say this to you, that we, the hope that I have for us, for you and me, <laughs> is that we should have a, even a greater appreciation of this truth, of, of God's uh, willingness and intent to come and to bring all the evil of the world to judgment because we have the rest of the story. And the New Testament scriptures, more so than the Old Testament scriptures, conclusively teach that indeed there will be a day when, when we are all brought before the Lord in judgment and that we will all, every single one of us, be counted guilty before him. There's no one righteous, no, not one. Not a single one of us in this room, the scripture would say, has loved our enemies perfectly. I don't even love my family and my wife and my friends well, let alone my enemies. And that means we stand condemned. But here's the amazing thing. That David knew in part, but that we know in full. And is the promise in the New Testament scriptures that God is not just a God of judgment, but that he ultimately is a God who loves his enemies. See, David had no way of knowing, but for God to answer his prayer, remember, remember, God will count me not guilty. For God to answer his prayer and save him meant that another king, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, had to come into the world to be hunted and persecuted and ultimately put to death. And in order for us to be declared not guilty, he must be declared guilty in our place. And that's exactly what the gospel teaches us happened. That on the day he hung upon the cross, the Lord Jesus hung there in the place of our sins to die the death that should have been ours. And so what we learn in the gospel is that the beautiful work of God on, on, on the cross in the person of Jesus is the very thing we can look to in this, this battle between us and our enemies. I mean, David loved Saul at the risk of his own life. He, in, not, in not killing Saul, David made himself liable to, to further judgment, to Saul further hunting him. And trying to destroy him. David loved him at the risk of his own life. But Jesus loved us at the cost of his own life. And so what Romans 5 says. And I'll read it to you again. Is that. Paul says for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one will dare to even die. But God is different than anybody else. He shows his love. In that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. And there, there, he goes on to say. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son how much more will we be saved by his life now here's the gospel truth that we need to think about this morning as we really kind of think about how to load this stuff up in our hearts okay Jesus did not come into the world and die for you because you were his friend you were his enemy I was his enemy and he died to make us his friends see God if you if you're new to Christianity or you're not really even sure what Christianity is let me let me give you some God does not love us because there's something in us that merits or attracts his love. He loves us and loved us even when we hated him. I mean, that's the truth of his love. He doesn't love us because we're good. He loves us and died for us to make us good. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, okay, let me just talk to you for one second. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, then the Bible's clear. There's no neutrality, okay? There's no, no Switzerland in this game. I mean, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've never put your faith in Jesus, then you have declared yourself an enemy of God most high. And if I could appeal to you and say as humbly as I possibly can, you don't want to meet him on the day of judgment as his enemy. He comes to you in the gospel offering terms of peace, and if you will turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus, God will not treat you as an enemy but a friend. But if you're here and you're a Christian, do you see Do you see how this, this truth, God loves his enemies, this truth, even when we were his enemies, he loved, for, loved us and died for us, that this truth helps you in your obedience to Jesus. Because see, when you see that God loved you, even when you were his enemy, and that he sent his son into the world, right, uh, to die so that you could live, then here's what will happen to you. That truth's going to 
so humbly, you're going to be so humbled by that truth that you'll never look at the people who are your enemies the same way again. I mean, God did not define you and I by our sin against him. He saw beyond our sin and he set his love upon us in defiance of our sin. And so when you see, when you see that, it'll lead you to do the same towards those who sin against you. Okay? But if you forget, if on the other hand, if you forget that you were God's enemy, and if you think it's because you're moral or good or right that God loves you, then when it comes to your enemies, you'll be self-righteous and mean and forever insisting that you're right and they're wrong. But the truth of the gospel not only humbles us, it will also secure us. You see, when you really get a hold of the truth, when it really comes into your heart that God loves you despite all of your sin and failure, that you're a sinner but you're loved because of the work of Christ in your behalf, it will give you confidence, it will give you courage, and you won't be afraid of conflict. You won't avoid it. You'll be able to pursue whatever temporary enemy you may have and confront the issue because your emotional needs are already met in the gospel. But again, if you forget, if you forget that you're loved, if you're not resting in Jesus' love for you, you'll be full of fear and afraid of conflict because what the other person who hates you might say about you feels like a truth when it's not, and so you won't do conflict. You'll just seethe on the inside with anger and resentment. (laughs) And there won't be any reconciliation. See, what's amazing is David wins Saul. I mean, temporarily, but he wins Saul. And what we learn is that only the gospel can, on the one hand, make us humble enough to not retaliate, not avenge. Because it reminds us that we're a sinner, that we were God's enemy and he loved us. At the same time, to make us courageous enough, bold enough, not to avoid the kind of conflict that leads to reconciliation, but to pursue it for the sake of doing good, even to the people who have hurt us and abused us and filtering everything we do through negative grid. See, that's my hope. I mean, that's my hope, that that the Spirit would come not only make us good friends to one another, but where there's conflict and where we kind of get crossways with one another, that, that, that the Spirit would come and give us humility so that we don't retaliate and avenge courage so that we just don't let conflict kind of sit out there and not deal with it, but that we would go into the middle of it and speak the truth to one another in love so that at the end of the day we would be a people who are known, not that everything's just hunky-dory, but we would be a people who are known for dealing with conflict and leading to reconciliation because that is a beautiful testimony. Uh, to the truth of the gospel being real and alive among us. And so let's pray that God would do that in our midst. Can we do that this morning as the worship team comes and leads us in one more song? Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your work on our behalf, and I do pray that you would drive home to our hearts the reality of the truth of your love for us even when we were your enemies. Uh, and I, I confess to you, there not a whole lot of experience uh, in doing this because I typically just kind of uh, don't even try. Forgive me. Forgive me that I seethe with hatred and uh, disgust at the people who've hurt me, that I am a coward and refuse to move out and to speak words of honesty uh, to them for the sake of being reconciled, that I'm just content to live unreconciled to those that I call my brothers and my sisters, or that in my heart I just hate them and strike them down, put my hand out against them. Oh, Father, forgive me, forgive us. Would you come and work by the grace of the gospel and the power of the Spirit to turn us into a community of people who not only befriend one another well, but who love one another even uh, when we feel like we're enemies to one another, that you might be glorified in our midst, that the gospel, the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ might uh, be operative and that the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus might be so evident in the love that we have for one another 
that the city we live in takes notice and wakes up and sees and comes to know that the love that you have for them is real. Uh, That is the commandment that you've given to us. Come by the Spirit and give us the grace to obey you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) That that would be the defining feature of our lives, but it is an even more startling thing to say that a God uh, against whom we have sinned greatly, who should in rightful justice condemn us and vanquish us, instead sent his most precious possession, his own son into the world, even while we were still his enemies in order to love us. Now, the truth of the gospel is such a startling thing that it makes sense that he would call us to live lives that are startling as evidences of the truth of the very thing we claim uh, to be true of our relationship with him. And so, the only way, then, that you become a person who can love not only your friends, but also your enemies, is to know that God loves you not because you're his friend, but because you're his enemy. And that is the promise of this benediction, that whereas in your sin his hands were raised to crush you, Now, because of the work of Christ on your behalf, if your faith is in Jesus, he raises his hands not to crush you but to bless you. And so I raise my hands over you uh, as a sign of the Father's hands being raised over you uh, in love and delight and favor. Uh, So if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive the benediction. Then may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Go in his peace. God bless.